And good morning uh, to what is our third webinar, live webinar of Guernsey Sustainable Finance Week, Private Capital Financing Sustainability in the Post-COVID Era. Uh, and I'm joined today by uh, some, some real stars of the private equity world to talk about the role of private equity financing sustainability. I have with me this morning Richard Burrett, Chief Sustainability Officer to Earth Fund Earth Capital, uh, fellow at the Cambridge University Institute for Sustainability Leadership and former chair of the uh, UNEP Finance Initiative. I have Gapreet Manku, Deputy Director and General, uh, Deputy Director General, I should say, and Head of Policy at the BVCA. And I have Divya Shashami, Managing Partner at Greensphere um, and member of the UK Government's Council of Sustainable Business, where she heads the Net Carbon Zero Initiative. Um, good morning to you all. I feel like it's the marriage of Cana and we've saved the, uh, the best for last this week. Good morning. 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 Okay, so before we get into the nitty gritty, I've got a few housekeeping points for the audience. Um, so a brief uh, running uh, overview of the running order. There'll be a panel discussion uh, followed by a Q&A, and we will, I'll be asking polls throughout the, uh, or polling questions throughout the webinar. Um, you are appointed to the, the widgets where the live sponsors and resources and literature are available to download. Please do complete the survey at the, at the end of this. It's really good to have feedback. We've had a great week so far. Refer a colleague to the webinar uh, if you think it was good. And also look at the website. We have, this has been a great week. We've had three live webinars, three podcasts. Today it's with Ben McQuay, who's a founder of the Green Finance uh, Initiative and he's a strategic advisor to the, the chair of the Hong Kong Green Finance Association. And that's a really good podcast we had there to getting the view from Asia. Um, please tell, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GSY Green Finance. And we've got a hashtag for the event, hashtag GYSFW20. So with no further ado, that's the, um, that's the housekeeping points out of the way. We've had a great week, guys. Um, Tuesday, I had uh, Ben Collicott uh, and Angelica Bagalow from the City UK and the, and the uh, Oxford Stability Institute. And we talked about basically the, the takeaways for me there that there's, there's, in terms of the recovery, there's a huge, huge uh, public finance agenda and a huge greening agenda. And the, the policymakers said there's a huge, big role for uh, the, the public finance, but private capital did have a huge part to play in that. And actually, that was our polling supported that. And the, they were talking about the role of the public sector to crowd in private capital to, to green uh, this, and sustain the recovery. Um, and there was a role for finance centres to provide green and sustainable products such as Guernsey and obviously the City of London to help drive capital into those areas. Now, Wednesday, we had the family officers talking about sustainability. Uh, we're joined by uh, local uh, strategic uh, investor sustainability, John Walton and Turnaround Investor. And also David Bain of Family Capital and Turn Kwan from the Zurich Institute of uh, Private Wealth at the Zurich Institute of Sustainable Finance. Mm -hmm. And we talked, the three points there was that it was returns that was going to be key. And in fact, our audience, it was very much front and centre, as it has been every time we've asked that question um, for private capital. It was the development of direct investments and co-investing, the opportunities of family offices to invest directly that was going to drive capital. And also the third point, which was quite, uh, quite interesting, was that it was impact, not so much ESG, that private investors were, you know, were more, more concerned with. And similar to that, it was the, the concept of the, the need to blend finance and, and to reduce returns for private capital to go into areas that policymakers wanted. So that was then, this is now. Today, it's a conversation about the role of private equity within, within all of that. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, as an icebreaker, I suppose, or just maybe if we just take a step back, the theme today is talking about financing sustainability, the use of private capital in the post-COVID area. But go back to January, not so long ago now, you know, Prince Charles was at Davos. We were talking about that we just had the year where we'd had Greta sending across to New York. Mm. Um, we'd had Extinction Rebellion, various protests. I'll hold my hands up. I was there with them on Parliament Square. Uh, and and it's, it's a huge area. So I'd just like to go back and ask you all. And I think I'll start with you, Richard, because if you're, you know, it's over, you know, mm. honoured to be, you know, pleased to be part of our panel today. What is coming into 2020, pre-COVID, what were the three key areas you saw as going to be key, particularly from a private equity view? Um, look, I agree with you that, that climate change um, was was a, a massive issue. I mean, as you know, at Earth Capital, we, we only focus on uh, investment themes that address sustainability issues. So um, for us, it was no surprise that the climate change theme was was 
ramping up, uh, particularly with the pressure of TCFD reporting behind it. So I think a number of financial institutions were grappling with how do we actually, you know, translate TCFD into what we do as a business. Um, I think, secondly, the impact agenda clearly was one that, that has grown considerably in recent years. We've seen some considerable increases in um, impact investing volumes and, and a belief that they will grow further. Um, and I, I'm not too sure I think that uh, it's impact over ESG, but I think um, the sort of discussions I've heard around ESG are that, um, you know, ESG 1.0 isn't fit for purpose and certainly isn't fit for future purpose. So we need to go to ESG 2.0 or 3.0, which genuinely integrates um, uh, ESG issues into decision making. Yeah, that's a very good point there, yeah. Rich. I mean, um, it, if you look at the... The conversation this week, it's been very much uh, 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 on the one hand, on the other hand, on the ESG. It's, uh, mm. it's, uh, I think it's something we can pick up later. That's really good. So uh, yeah. uh, ESG, uh, the TCFD, Divya, what's, what's it from your perspective from Greensphere? Uh, TCFD is kind of just embodying what we've always done. So Greensphere was set up to really take into account some uh, key systemic risks that we believe uh, make a material difference to uh, investment returns, investment outcomes, um, and also the resilience of portfolios. And I think the, the third point, which is resilience, is very rarely mentioned. Because when we talk about risk versus return, everyone always opens um, up the conversation about impact on returns, going up, uh, you know, even in this pandemic, people have been talking about, oh, um, you know, where can we make money? Uh, and, and, and people often forget yeah. that uh, with long-term investors, with family offices, um, we certainly have you know, one vehicle which is effectively buy and hold. Uh, the, the conversation isn't around, you know, where can we, we double our money? The conversation is, is where can we invest in long-term resilient uh, investments. And, and uh, the TCFD encapsulates, certainly encapsulates some of that, uh, because what it says is, look, you have to take into account these uh, um, uh, risks. But I think as fund managers, we can go one step further and talk about the mathematical impact mm -hmm. of some of these risks into our investments. And certainly what we're seeing with environmental risk and um, in, in particular, what we call systemic risk of volatility, resource scarcity, and climate stress—not emissions-based climate stress—but the you know the mathematical change of what used to be a um, a game of averages now becoming a game of extremes. And that really mm. changes how your your you, you view your portfolio. Um, we're certainly seeing that resilience is becoming an increasingly important factor. Uh, to look at when, especially given pools of capital are moving longer term, um, at least from where we sit. Well, so pools of capital moving longer term, it, that's a very interesting point. I mean, you know, and investing through the cycle is affected in resilience. GURPS, is that, um, you know, from, from the BVCA's perspective, you know, is that what your members uh, are feeding back to you? What, what were your three key themes coming into 2020? I mean, the first thing was that this was uh, very much on the agenda for a number of different stakeholders mm. within the broader private equity community. So it was on the agenda of investors, um, regulators were talking about the need to, to um, put in actions to address climate change. Um, and the firms themselves, um, whether it be through a direct sort of investing mandate or just looking at their broader investment policies and their approach to due diligence and, and just thinking about ESG, responsible investment in the round. Um, and we found that even when you didn't specifically talk about this subject, um, it came up. So if I look back to October, we had our big annual conference, over 800 people there. Um, and the focus was really around 2020 and, and the next decade. Um, but 
climate change, investing sustainability, diversity, mm. they were all subjects that every speaker more or less spoke about. It was the continuous theme throughout the day. Um, and it, it, it feels as though you're sort of moving from people looking at ESG as a, as a risk issue, um, as a way of mitigating ESG risks, to actually looking at how um, they can, uh, firms can create um, value opportunities um, from a business perspective. But, but more recently, and I think we're going to talk a bit about this in respect of COVID, um, just thinking about um, whether you know how, this is the right thing to do and how to do it. And that pressure is, isn't just coming from investors and regulators, it's, it's also coming from the individuals that are joining these firms. Um, you know, the younger generation that are coming in care about these areas um, uh, deeply. Um, and when they're looking at which firms to join, um, we all know that talent is a drive for access to talent, drive for talent is, is, is huge. Um, they're looking at this as well and thinking about how firms are responding, whether they actually want to work for a manager and how do they address the subject of sustainability, diversity and so forth in, in the way they do the, and run their business. That's a good point. I mean, um, Stephen Nolan, the uh, head of the UNFC4S on our podcast on Tuesday, did actually say, you know, there was a, a, a fight for talent out there in this agenda, particularly amongst the younger generation. And I realised he wasn't talking about me. Um, but uh, so in terms of returns in ESG, Richard, you, you know, again, we talked about it. The Marmite was the phrase mm -hmm. I was grasping for there, you know, with your ESG 1.0 and such. And Divya, you know, bringing in that risk, is, which is uh, uh, to date with our, with our Monday and Tuesday sort of conversations with the uh, more of the policy side and, and then the owners mm -hmm. of private capital, sort of the focus on return. And I did feel that risk as part of the conversation had a bit been underweight. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of risk, I think that helps me sort of segue to the, to the point I want to ask you all about is we're talking about greening the recovery, making the recovery more sustainable. And we're talking about a huge amount of public capital being committed to this agenda. You know, look at the EU, you're talking, what, 750 billion plus the, the quantitative easing, but then you're German, the 4% of GDP, then the UK, you know, and looking at all, and, and Stern and Stiglitz say, you know, uh, did, a, did a review, uh, for, you know, uh, you get two Nobel Prize laureates, uh, everyone reads the paper, and they say, look, there's, there's going to be a need for pub the public sector to coordinate this and ensure there's a greening the recovery because the private sector won't do it on its own. You go, okay, yeah, fine, fair dues. But given that huge uh, scale of public financing commitment, how do you see the role, what is going to be the role of private capital, the role of private equity within that agenda? And what's going to make um, you know, returns work in, 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 in that world of massive, massive public stimulus? Richard, I, mean, I heard you hopefully is agreeing with me on those, on those points there, but have you got a, a view with respect to, to, to how that world of return is going to work in that, uh, you know, in that, in that sea of public capital? Um, yes, I have. I, I, I think, um, yeah, the amounts are huge, quite clearly, that, that the public sector is talking about. Um, but if you think back to the launch of the Sustainable Development Goals uh, back in 2015, um, they were saying then that if we actually wanted to finance the Sustainable Development Goals, um, there was a belief that maybe 17 to 80% of the capital would need to come from the private sector. And I don't think, even with these huge numbers that uh, the public sector are talking about, I don't think that assessment has, has fundamentally changed. Um, I think it's great that if, if governments do go that route, that there'll be... Um, uh, a large amount of, you know, public capital leading the way potentially and stimulating private capital. I think that's very helpful. Um, I think what's perhaps the interesting thing to explore is what does it mean then for the relationship between the public and, and private sectors? You know, will we see the public sector as a much greater stakeholder in uh, the recovery, certainly behind some of the larger financial institutions, the banking sector, um, in terms of trying to get it right going forward and, and not repair what was broken in the first place. So um, as far as private equity is concerned, there's a massive opportunity. Um, private equity is, is a slightly more patient form of capital. Um, it's ideal for the young growth businesses that are going to be 
required uh, in a sustainable green recovery. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to it with uh, a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, uh, Gerbs, that, that phrase patient capital is one that I know me and you have talked about in the past. I'll, I'll come to you, to you in a minute on that. But I just wanted to segue quickly to Divya in terms of Richard's point about the, the role and the relationship between the, 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 the state and the public sector. You're part of the, the UK government's net carbon zero, uh, net zero initiative. How do you see, you know, it, from that perspective, you've, you've mentioned about climate change risks, and particularly in the preps of the calls. As, as a manager, you know, quite clearly risk is, is, is as important as return. So, how, how do you see that relationship within the public and private um, developing uh, and that relationship of risk and return? I actually don't see the distinction, quite frankly. Um, I think people often say public sector, private sector. The thing about private sector is it seeks return. And people often assume that the public sector should seek social good, jobs. But of course, jobs unless you're in some sort of bizarre command economy type situation, mm -hmm. ultimately need to be commercially viable. You can't continue to subsidize a sector forever. Certainly some sectors need a bit of a leg up, but, but you know, you can't. And, and we've seen how in renewables, things like solar, which initially had subsidies now are, you know, it's well beating technology that has beat, you know, fossils on grid prices, as has, you know, offshore wind. So the question for the government really is, um, and I, you know, I've got two hats on. One, with Greensphere, we, we were the first fund manager of the Green Investment Bank. And um, we've run a, we, you know, we run a triple bottom line fund for them for ages, um, with job creation as one of the, the aims. Um, and now in, in, in the role I have with the CSV as well, uh, my second hat on, I don't see the distinction at all. Because if government starts to support things that ultimately are not economically viable, then they have a real problem. So they actually start need to start really thinking like long-term private equity, right? Um, because uh, take, for example, sustainable aviation fuels and aviation in general. You know, this is something that's raging on at the moment. Um, the aviation industry has asked for sustainable aviation fuels to be brought in. Long term, the view is if we can develop technology in the UK, we can sell this technology to other unsuspecting people outside. Now, the reality is the, the numbers just don't add up. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, with, with a lot of this converting garbage to fuel and, and wood to fuel type situations, um, you are putting in far more energy than you would have just by, instead of just using Saudi oil. Um, the government needs to ask real serious questions about, sure, we think we can produce this, but can we sell this so-called green story elsewhere to the rest of the world? Or do we take a harder challenge, for example, like hydrogen, which could be the better alternative and cleaner alternative to sustainable aviation fuel, but it's not an answer now and certainly doesn't allow the aviation industry to immediately greenwash itself. But we're missing out on that. So every other country has been massively investing in hydrogen and we have not. And, and, and that's a really interesting dichotomy, right? Because it's, it's, it's almost like a venture firm trying to figure out um, how to create industry and jobs over the long term. And what we're finding, and at least it's certainly the case, is a lot of the, 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 the government isn't equipped to make those sorts of decisions um, and make them quickly enough. Because these are massive, these are your know, 30-year decisions with venture-type risk. <laughs> it's effectively what you're talking about. It's almost an impossible investment mandate. Um, and, and that's what we're asking them to do. So, so, you know, I think there needs to be a lot less, this is a social good. This is not a social good. This is entirely an investment decision by government. Because at the end of the day, what they're interested in are jobs. Um, they're interested in economic growth. Uh, and they're also interested in, in job security for, for people. The quality of jobs is really important. So, 
COVID changes some things, but it doesn't change absolutely everything. And so the distinction between the public and private capital, as you said, was one thing was that there shouldn't necessarily be that distinction. But you know, it, it, some of the some of the, the same things are through through all of this are still axiomatic. And the role of private capital in facilitating risk and facilitating innovation and facilitating change is still is still paramount. Not to paraphrase, but I just have. So, GURPS, and apologies for that. I, I, I sort of brought you in and then didn't bring you in. In terms of to come back to, to that question, in terms of learning the lessons from the crisis about the, the need for, for patient capital and, and creating demand for uh, for this. Do you have anything sort of further to add to what Divya said there, or is that where again similar? You're seeing a similar story from your invest from your from your members. So I, I agree with her. I don't think there's a you know this trade-off between um, returns and um, and the need to do social good. Um, in respect of the role of government, I think there is a role for government when it comes to stimulating investment demand. Um, and clearly, we've got lots of programmes in the UK that help um, draw in investor capital into areas where there isn't sufficient investor demand. So I think there is a role to do that. Um, but I also just think longer term, it, it doesn't need to necessarily focus on that additionality. Um, if you can get the government to view the, these things as long-term investments that do generate return, that do generate jobs, um, that's a good thing as well, rather than moving um, objectives between different political cycles, because that's what you kind of want to do. You want to move you know, that, that um, element um, um, of um, sort of political differences or you know, new parties coming in and out, out of it. Uh, because this is definitely a long-term investment um, proposal, a long-term long investment um, requirement, um, and you need to draw in the experience of um, private, the private sector and the firms and the individuals that are, are you know, deeply knowledgeable about these areas um, to be able to do that. I mean, so to summarise, I think, if I, if I may, sort of the, the, the consensus response there was that uh, sort of, you know, lots of things change, everything changes, but nothing changes. Some of the things that, in terms of where the, the private, the role of private capital, the role of private equity, um, is still the same as it ever was. I mean, Richard, you mentioned about going back to the SDGs. You know, you've been involved in this area for for a long period of time. Are there any lessons? That the PE industry can learn from from COVID, for, you know, from in terms of the sustainability. Um, Divya mentioned resilience being, <coughs> being an issue there, and quite frankly, it's a topic in Guernsey we've been talking quite a lot of uh, recently too. You know, we've just been through a, a period where we all decamped to home. We continue continued on pretty much uninterrupted, business as usual. Uh, we're now, you know, uh, fortunately over here in, in a situation where things are, are, are more or less back to, to normal regime. But still, it was a learning of a lesson about the need for resilience of the way that we operated. Um, are, there any, are, there, are there any other sort of lessons to be learned for, for investing for, for private equity from the crisis? Uh, from, from my perspective, yes. I mean, um, on... Let's, let's just think back to, to what we've done. I mean, basically, large parts of the planet have spent the last three months at home. Some of us in professional roles working and trying to sort of continue business as usual digitally. Um, we've seen massive reductions in CO2 emissions. Um, we've seen air pollution um disappearing in certain areas, particularly urbanised areas. But looking at that, at the CO2 reductions, at no point in time over the last three months has uh, the emissions level fallen lower than, I think it was a 17% reduction on where it was before. And, and we've had to virtually stop the sort of physical uh, economy to do that. We've only reduced it by 17%. So I'm sitting here looking at climate change now thinking, God, we've got to get to 100% by 2050. And um, switching off the whole economy is not a, a viable option. So it just reinforces for me the total transformation of the economy that is needed. We've also seen value changing hugely, um, which is, is fascinating from an investor perspective. Um, I was reading the other day that Zoom as a company is now worth more 
than the seven largest uh, airline companies globally. Uh, well, Mark Carney is, has spoken in a, or written in a, an article in The Economist talking about how COVID will actually change um, perceptions of, of value. And I, I think it's very true. So I think we have learned things from COVID. Um, our globally interconnected lives have, have become far more local and we've been connected in a different way um, digitally rather than, than physically. I, I think a lot of us will look uh, from an investment perspective at the, the supply chain risks uh, of many of the companies that we're looking at. I mean, you know, these globally interconnected supply chains uh, have, have clearly been vulnerable in, in, in the COVID crisis. Um, we may look at supply chain resilience in a very different way. So for me, I think COVID just um, underscores a, a lot of the reasons why some of us do uh, uh, sustainability investing, which is to really understand the vulnerabilities, the dependencies uh, and the impacts of uh, the businesses that we invest in and to try and understand them better. And I think we're going to have to be even more more uh, careful about this as we emerge from from COVID because things will have changed. Mm. Good point. I mean, that, that resilience and the transformational point there, uh, Richard. I mean, you know, I've just spent 20 minutes saying some things don't change, but then we just say to all, and, and everything changes. Um, I think that's probably the, the Economist uh, mm. coming out there. But it, I saw you nodding, uh, Gerb Stevie. In terms of that transformation uh, of the economy, do you, what's in terms of the role for the PE, uh, for the private equity sector? Do you see this as a an opportune moment to be involved in PE? Yes. Oh, sorry, um, I should say. Didvia, yeah. Sorry, my, my apologies. I should direct a question to one or both of you, well, preferably one at a time. So, Didvia, I, um, sorry. I have a slightly different, I guess, lens to put on this because I, I sit on a FTSE 250 board and I, where I chair the risk committee. Um, and, and, and one of the things I found is boards in general, whether it's publicly listed boards or otherwise, are starting to look at systemic risk more seriously. Um, you know, when, when the, the the big five had systemic risk reports come out and everyone reads them, but because they were so extensive, they would list every possible risk before, um, you know, risk of, of, of your fingernail getting uh, 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 hurt down to risk of it raining. And it makes risks almost meaningless. Um, and why I think now is a great time to be in private equity is because people are starting to take risk seriously. And when you're in private equity, your biggest challenge is uh, mitigating risk. And oftentimes, I don't know if you've felt this, Richard, but you'd be sitting on your on, on a board or you're talking to a portfolio company and uh, you're the only one in the room who is looking at risks seriously and looking at the mitigation. You, you almost feel a little bit alone, like you're, you're kind of herding cats. And, and all of a sudden, you've got boards that are really kind of aware that using the lens of risk and return is how, you, how they should be operating this. And they're also not looking at the risk section, whether it's a listed company, they're not looking at the risk section as something um, almost intrinsically away from them, they are, they're, they're starting to realize that they need to be mapping these risks out mm. by likelihood and impact. And yep. when you have that happening, you start to actually get a much better alignment uh, with the private equity model. And we certainly hope that, you know, asset managers in the public space start to do this too. Because I don't think they ever thought uh, deeply enough about these, these sorts of risks. It's very herd-like, almost goldfish-like quality to the public market sometimes. Mm. Um, and I think the more aligned we are, the more focused we are on, on risk versus return, and the more we start to actually prioritize risks. So we start to really look at that risk section and say, actually, mm. yeah, we can, we can maybe not talk about the fingernails. It's not as important as this risk. And, you mm. know, here's how I'm going to, to really consider all, all the risks around this company 
that makes a difference. Also, the consideration of systemic risks has started being taken a lot more seriously. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that the big five actually put a pandemic risk at relatively a, a high likelihood. Mm. Uh, and everyone looked at it and flipped the page. Because guess what? The fingernail risk and the, you know, the kind of risk of rain was right next to it. Um, so, so impact and likelihood are being taken seriously, and that's great for alignment. So it's a great time for, for investors, I think. There's some brilliant points there, Divya. And I'm just going to jump in there. And I've pushed the, the live poll of the audience about those four factors. The question I asked of what was the most important factor in attracting private capital to green sustainable green investments? And concerns for systemic risks is, is down there at 7%. It, again, I, and I, it's the point that you're making is I don't think it's generally on the radar of, of many uh, of, of enough people. And we, we talk about TCFD. And I remember I was the director of financial stability at our local regulator, the GFSC, when Mark Kearney first you know, chaired the TCFD and published this. And I talked about the tragedy of the horizons, and I was wondering what he was smoking. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but now you know, it's, it's now embedded within me. But yet. And whilst TCFD, we asked a survey, said, you know, do you know your difference between your TCFD and your SDGs, et cetera, your ESG from your PRI? And most people, our survey said, no, we don't really, we don't really follow it, which is a, a shame because I sense that this is the one that's coming to a sorry, mandatory Sorry, Andy, I have, to, I have to just be a little bit controversial here. That slide's just Please wrong, say. right? Uh, returns. Oh, I'm, you I'm, don't have returns every time and, and concerns with systemic risks. If someone's focusing on on returns, you have to focus on risk. It's yeah. just, you know, it's, it's, they're not mutually exclusive. If you're not concerned exactly. about systemic yeah. risk, Sorry. you will not get return. Yeah. It's Richard? not mutually exclusive. It's not two things. It's the one thing, risk it's, versus it's return. It's the same coin. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's you know, mm. um, you can get very high returns, but if you, if you take in super high risk, it's very likely you could have also lost all of that. And, and sometimes you might get a certain return having taken disproportionate risk. Um, so, you know, this is, it's not, uh, it, they're not mutually exclusive. I guess the, the benefit of um, private equity is time. So these are long-term investments. Um, we have the time to um, investigate the risk properly and think about a response to them. And um, the, the, other, the other area that, um, is sometimes forgotten, and I think we're talking about the media in, in a bit, is that the managers themselves are invested alongside um, investors in the funds and in the investments that they're making. So that sort of shared alignment on doing the right thing and making sure that you're responding to risks properly um, is there. And I think that's where um, you know, sometimes forget that this is a long-term asset class. It's getting longer in some cases, and if we're bringing it back to the crisis, um, a lot of these portfolio companies will have the benefit of time um, to be able to adjust their business models, to look at the emerging issues and, and rethink how they approach things. I mean, it might sound fairly simplistic, but a lot of um, the firms I'm speaking to are thinking about travel. You know, this conference would have been in uh, abroad or or, um, or in London. Lots of people would have travelled to it. And people are thinking about how we can actually cut our carbon footprint and, and maybe um, implement some of the, the, the new uh, uh, ways mm. of working we've adjusted to over this period, um, as well as agile working and the impact that could have. They're not just thinking about it at a GP level, at mm. a PE firm level. They're thinking about their investments level as well. And I guess the, the one thing I would say about PE is, well, when I, um, so I get my feedback from, from members, from investors, from GPs. Um, so I always sort of look at this um, in, in the round, as you know, my policy, my background is policy, so I'm more from the technical side of things rather than investing. Um, but I've been with the BVCA for a long time and responsible investment was on the agenda when I joined. Um, our first guide to responsible investment um, was published in 2010, so that was over a decade ago. Um, and there have been lots of improvements um, and embracing of responsible investment, ESG, sustainable finance, impact um, investing, climate um, investment as well since then. Um, bringing it up to, to where we are now, I think what 
some firms need, and I suspect this might be at the smaller end, there are lots of micro funds out there, particularly in the venture space, is how do we look at what's happening in the regulatory sphere? All these and these all these acronyms and institutions that we've mm. been talking about and may be familiar with, how do we digest all of that um, and actually embed it all into our work? So that's a piece of work that we're, we're looking at at the BBCA just to, just to educate um, firms out there, um, people within firms, investors out there, just to, to understand what all the different terms mean, um, what are all the different initiatives, what changes are coming down the line from a regulatory perspective um, so that it sort of demystifies it a lot. Because um, I think one thing that might put people off and it shouldn't do is just that there is a lot out there um, and it looks like it could be a regulatory burden, but we don't want it to be. It needs to be manageable. It needs to be simple. Otherwise, you get back to what Divya was talking about. Um, it's a risk sheet, and everybody's um, looking at mm. all the smaller risks and not really focusing on the risks that matter. So, a brilliant point there, Gary. So, I think probably to, to bring in maybe some points that we're going to cover a bit later in terms of that that regulatory burden concerns, and we've had this in the, in our briefing conversations about this issue. Um, but actually, on Saturday there was the uh, there's the conversation from John Glenn suggesting that the UK might not uh, look to implement the the regulatory technical standards of the EU taxonomy in necessarily the same way uh, post Brexit. And but that, and that simplification point that you make, you know, my personal personal view was that. You, you get the art regulatory technical standards, you get a degree of granularity that you know, sometimes is not helpful, which informs us as a jurisdiction, Guernsey, we've, you know, we have a Guernsey Green Fund you know, regime, which is nice, straightforward and simple. We published uh, Green PE principles very recently, which had Tim Haynes, uh, you, you, who, who I believe you know very well, Gerbs, uh, who, is, you know, who provided the forward for that to actually provide some help with the demystification process. Richard, you guys, I want to come to you here in this respect. I'm not necessarily mm -hmm. asking your views on the taxonomy per se, but I want to ask you, but feel free if you wish to, to contribute. You guys have got the Earth Dividend, which is you know, pretty damn amazing. You guys have, I, I say, nailed it in terms of that reporting and, 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 uh, and standards and things. But how do you find your own internal processes being aligned with what's imposed <laughs> on you from other quarters? How is that? Do you, do you share the same concerns with GURPS uh, about the regulation and, and standards and, and rules getting in the way? Um, yes, I'll make, I'll make a couple of... Let's go back to the Earth dividend for a second, because the reason why we have a, a, a sort of ESG assessment tool um, is, is really to make sure that we have this holistic understanding of investments that we are uh, about to invest in. And then once we have made the investment, we then repeat the assessment on an annual basis. And we look at the performance of the companies and we try to identify areas where we can help the company to improve their performance, whether it's on pollution or ecosystem or natural capital or other societal uh, governance issues. Now, the reason we do that is to drive value. And, and I totally agree with Divya. I mean, concerns for systemic risk, for me, uh, it, should, it should be part and parcel of uh, our whole framing when we're thinking about investment decisions. I mean, we're trying to invest in areas that, that address societal need going forward. And as a result of that, we will find value there. We then have to have really holistic risk assessment on what we do going forward to make sure that the things that we invest in are, are really future fit and, and we can use our approaches to drive value. Now, when I then look at what's happening with the taxonomy and, and the proliferation of other standards, um, I think it's great that we're attempting to move towards a more consistent, comparable way to to look at esg factors but let's not let perfect get in the way of good um yeah. I, I also think there's a there's a danger in what we do i mean the taxonomy uh, you know goes to a lot of lengths to identify things as green in their terms um life is more complex than that things aren't green or brown uh, and mark carney talked about shades of green and i think you know we need a much more nuanced understanding of 
of, of the companies that we invest in, which is why I think a push to greater and better disclosure by companies is 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 very helpful because we need to understand companies and projects in a much more nuanced way. Um, I, I, I'm I have some pushback on on the taxonomy because I think it's a sort of you know four legs good, two legs bad approach to um, to identifying green investments, and life is more complex than that. Vivian, do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. I, um, I also think that um, you need to frame it again. I, I keep going back to risk, I guess, because um, mm. where you see people having made your um, made, made it, uh, said that they want returns every time, um, if you're not, if, if as a private equity professional or as an investor in general, if you are not mitigating those risks, there will not be the return. And if you come and say something is green, what risk are you solving for? Right? I'm, you know, um, take take something like Drax, for example. Um, something like seventy to eighty percent of Drax's input is oil. So uh, you know, it feeds through in their feedstock. So you know, if you if your feedstock cost is primarily transportation charges from Brazil or wherever, how they're, they're kind of getting their, their feedstock from, uh, then you are you are burning oil. You're not burning wood. Um, similarly, if you are a waste company and you've just been, you know, just invested in what's, what's called a green waste solution, if the input costs are largely made up of um, transportation charges, and those transportation charges are last, largely based on um, the oil price and petrol prices because your fleet isn't green. Um, then again, you're you are you are processing oil, <laughs> and and I, you know that's the risk you're solving for. You are not uncorrelated with the oil price. So some some investors come and tell me, look, I want to put my money into this particular sector because I want to be uncorrelated from oil. And I, and I tell them, you've got so, many so much transportation in, and in the logistics of this that you are entirely correlated with oil. Uh, so you are not being green. The sector may sound green, the sector may be labeled green, but you are entirely correlated with oil. Now there are other things that are entirely uncorrelated. So really, what risk are you trying to solve for? And once you try to, when, once you zero in on that, uh, you know, yes, it's less exciting. It means that you can't say I'm doing, you know, sustainable this and sustainable that. It means that you're actually having to do some work. Uh, but I guess my my big message is I think fund managers need to do more work um, because, you know, I think there's been a very, very lazy taxonomy. And that has meant that uh, you've ended up with a lot of terrible returns because people aren't managing to risk. They're not doing the job. So you mentioned Drax, which is uh, someone from the, from the near vicinity. We used to be quite—it's it's quite an ironic the, the way the world changes. We used to be very proud that it was the, the Europe's largest coal-fired uh, power generation, and the, my father used to fly over the trends and tell me how brown uh, the whole area was. But you make a really good point about that. It's, it's the end-to-end -end considerations that you're looking at. Hmm. That's quite a, a tricky and a nuanced point. And again, you, you know, it's, it's great having a, the, the archetypal example of a, uh, of a brewery in a certain jurisdiction, and it's, it's all very green, but actually it doesn't really matter if the, if, if the goods coming in, the input's coming in, the output's going out, consuming more, that you're, uh, more than you're saving mm -hmm. and mitigating in, in the middle. Kerbs, as, a, as a, somebody coming in more from a, a policy sort of type of background, as it were, in terms of the membership, you know, what's you know, I, I refer to the fact that we've talked, we've got a green fund regime, and it deliberately is very black and white and simple and straightforward. We've erred on that simplicity because we were, we did our research, we were told that that's what managers needed particularly, or actually it turns out it was it was the LPs that were looking for that reassurance. The managers needed something to give them that reassurance, and so. You, we've had these conversations before about uh, you know, the, the need for frameworks and standards, et cetera. The British Standards Institute is going down the route of developing its 
uh, some sustainability frameworks, and we've been involved in that uh, from Guernsey too. But in terms of BVCA, there is a risk of there being, you know, more standards than, than there are trees in the forest, as it were. How, how do you see all that reconciliation between the need for clarity and simplicity mm -hmm. and doing the right thing, as Richard said, uh, and Divya's point about, well, actually, don't forget, you've got to consider, get it correct. You've got to identify the risks correctly. Yeah, I mean, when I think about how this... Um has evolved over the years within the discussions here, and I suspect in many other, other associations, we weren't starting our conversation by talking about technical standards um, and reporting frameworks. We were, we were starting from a bottom-up approach, talking about the risks, the returns, how to do it, um, what the outcomes look like, um, educating members, um, we have responsible investment awards, so rewarding the ones that, that do do it right, um, and really bringing together GPs, LPs, and, and advisors to be able to do that work. Um, we now just moved into a world where, I guess, the work that we were doing was internal to the industry, and now we need to face off against the, the stuff that's coming through from external bodies, not external policy makers. Um, but you, you can't lose sight of um, the message, which is there are lots of firms out there that want to do this well. Um, because, you know, I don't want that message getting lost um, because um, Gerbrich's made a comment about regulatory burdens. That's not mm -hmm. what we're trying to, to do here. What we're saying is that there are people who want to do the right thing. Um, but what they don't need is um, a checklist um, or a set of boilerplate disclosures to complete each quarter or each year, because that's not going to help the fundamental cause, which is how do we do this? How do we do it well? How do we meet all our different objectives? Um, I, um, you know, I, with respect to you know, John Glenn's comments and, and so forth, I think I can understand a little bit about needing to see what we're committing to first. Um, because I think there is, um, you know, there is there is logic in that approach. Um, I'm an accountant by background, so I used to work in audit, and um, you know, there's no consistent accounting standards across across the globe. I think it's 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 a very it's going to be a very difficult um, road if we want to standardise this all across the globe. So managers will just need to be prepared. Um, to have differing um, requests coming through. We, we see that in a lot of areas already. Um, but if I come back to um, sort of my key point on this, it's in my old profession, I used to see a lot of boilerplate, um, and that was partly down to all the different requirements out there and the need to get things in, and they became, um, you know, the dis from disclosure perspective became quite boilerplate. Um, what we do want um, is the ability for firms to express what they've done in their own words, because then you really think about what it is that you've done. Mm. You're not just um, you're not just um, ticking a box and saying yes, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. Um, and I think there are lots of firms out there that want to do that. We just need to make sure that they've got the room to do that. You know, when I look at the FCA consultations in particular, I think they've acknowledged that there's lots lots of change out there. Um, and that they do need to monitor all the different standards coming out there. So I hope you know they they're, they're taking the time to implement things um, in a more logical manner in, in a way that works for the UK market, while still having an eye for all the different uh, moving parts from an international perspective as well. Yeah. I mean, you, Kurtz, you mentioned um, you, well, in the middle of that talk, making it simple to do to do the right thing and. Um, we're talking earlier, just before we started the call, about the um, the, the growing demand or uh, the growing. Or, so the conversation is about how do you get that wall of money into the right projects. There was a research uh, report published very recently um, from EY, I believe it was, that was talking about sustainable investment strategies, and that many of them um, didn't have a track record. Uh, and so the traditional uh, method methodology of assessment and, and picking the right opportunities didn't necessarily work. Yesterday we were talking on the on the um, family uh, family office finance and sustainability webinar. The the the, the growth of co investments and, and and being aligned in with, uh, with with private equity opportunities and that's how the, the, the market had been developed. That direct investing from. Um, from the manager's perspective, how, how, how has that worked for you? Do you see this um, in terms of, a, let's say, the regulatory perspective for now, how do you uh, 
be, be reassured and convinced about that you've got the right mix of risk and reward for that investment opportunity without, you know, in a, what is a, in a new and innovative areas. When you say new um, and innovative, what do you mean? Oh, sorry. Wait, so we're talking about the sustainable sorry, investment you say strategies. We well, Richard was about to talk. I was, if Richard, if you would like to, I think Richard was ready to answer. So, sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I, I don't see any lack of evidence that um, having a um, a focus on um, on sustainability issues. Um, impacts return negatively. I mean, there's a whole wealth of um, academic and practitioner study out there that says that companies that do have a uh, clear focus on sustainability issues outperform. Um, and and I, I mean, I didn't go into the Ernst & Young report in uh, any detail. Now, what they might be saying is, if we look at some of the newer investment areas, there's less evidence there. But yeah, fair enough. I mean, if you look at the solar uh, PV uh, market uh, 10 years ago, it looked a very difficult market to invest in. So did offshore wind, as was mentioned earlier by Divya. Uh, clearly no longer the case. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, somebody won the Nobel Prize for economics uh, with the endogenous growth theory that if you invest in sectors that make sense, um, the economics change over time. And we've seen that with solar and, and offshore. So I, I have... I have absolutely no concerns from a private equity perspective about um, investing in areas of or newer areas of technology which are responding to very clear societal market needs. I mean, that's how you know venture capital, private equity companies in these growth sectors often make money. It's as simple as that. We're purely doing this from a returns perspective. So again, we're back to returns. Yeah. And one of the questions you mentioned about ESG reporting, you're absolutely right. I've seen, I've seen lots of research. And in fact, um, uh, Turner yesterday said there are about 200 different studies that said the same thing about the ESG investments uh, providing a greater return in, in the long run. Oh. Probably because, you know, the fact is that you've mentioned Divya, you know, uh, resilience through the cycle, etc. But we did have a view that, you know, does, does the ESG reporting itself, and you said, Richard, earlier that ESG you know, um, was, was 1.0, what it wasn't fit for purpose. But do you see that, that ESG reporting as a methodology driving more capital into sustainable investments or is it just, does it just substitute for, for different types of investing? Do you think it's a, it has a positive momentum? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I discussed this with you, Andy. I think I am mixed about this. Um, we, we've, been a, we've been an ESG investor for 10 years and uh, what we've found is over the time, um, we've reported on everything from um, job creation to climate statistics to emission statistics, you, you know, you mm. name it, we've reported on it. And what we've found is increasingly with LPs, there are all these different standards um, and there are all these different whether it's it's uh, accountability standards, whether it's transparency standards, whether it's ESG standards and impact standards, uh, some of them have just gone the whole hog uh, because it's no cost to them, or at least it's portrayed as no cost to them. And in their annual review process, and this is particularly the case for, I think, sort of government pension funds where you know, the standards guys turn up, uh, how they make their money is by selling memberships or standards to people like us, the fund mm -hmm. manager. Uh, and then they, what they do is they say, these are great standards. It's not going to cost you anything, LP, Mr. LP, to sign up to this. And the LP goes, fantastic. So he, he does that. And then when the annual review comes, you know, our investor relations department will get like a long list of 
have you signed up to this and have you signed up to that? If not, why not? And, you know, for, for an investor that's been literally an ESG investor, it's A, daunting. B, if you're a smaller investor or you choose to be a smaller investor, mm-hmm. um, you're finding yourself with these huge memberships, varied uh, accounting reporting standards, sometimes conflicting reporting standards. And at some point you need to, you know, time out, go to your LP and say, look, this is going to cost you. Mm. Um, And I think that moment is coming. I think GPs have kind of grinned and borne some of this vast amount of reporting that's come their way. And LPs have said, that's great. But there is a certain and finite amount of resource uh, and if it isn't paid for, if, it, if that time isn't paid for, something's got to give, right? Um, and if you want this raft, it's not cost-free is, I think, the answer. Um, and I think there needs to be a genuine discussion of where this is coming, why it's being done. Um, and I think that I, I suspect and unfortunately suspect that a lot of LPs, whether they're public market LPs or private uh, equity investing LPs are doing this to tick boxes as opposed to genuinely using this as a risk uh, return metric or resilience metric for their portfolios. What they want to say is we've hired two guys, they they have these meetings, they make our, our GPs do all sorts of bizarre reporting. We've got all of these little green looking stamps on our website. Uh, you know, PRI or green. I'm not saying any of these are bad or good, but they're rafts of them. Um, you used to go some of the LP websites, they're kind of plastered with these little badges. Um, and and it's all monkey-dory. And the, the reality is you, your portfolio may not be any more resilient uh, by doing that. And that's, I think, really important for pensioners, people putting their money in pension funds to to identify with but also the LPs to kind of really wake up because that, the, the, having a badge on your website is not going to make your portfolio resilient. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I, my apologies to the panel. I, we've, we've more or less completely run out of time. It's been such a fascinating conversation. I have got one quick question from the audience, which to wrap up and then I want to thank you all, which is um, um, from David Ross in, from TVA saying, um, do you think there's a role, obviously COP26 next, next year, it's been delayed a year, and Richard, you mentioned it earlier, and you know, we've all, we were all well aware of Mark Curry's private capital um, initiative within that. Do you think there's, a, there's, there's room or there's, there's, a, there's a requirement for maybe a, a private equity work streaming COP26 for next year? A quick round, Richard, is that a yes or a no? Um, another work stream. Uh, my immediate reaction <laughs> is, oh, no, but clearly, uh, I mean... Clearly, there, there is a massive opportunity for private equity to contribute to COP26. I mean, if there's going to be a work stream, then let's make it a meaningful one. Gerbs, I mean, I've probably betrayed that I've worked in the public sector the last 10 years rather than the previous 20, but uh, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Richard. <laughs> and Divya, a final word for you? Is that, it, it, there's another binary question, I'm afraid. A yes or a no, private equity, a big role for COP26? Firm, no. Well, we've turned out three, but we'll, uh, we'll maybe pick that one up later. A conversation for another day. Look, listen, that's been, it was a fascinating hour. One of those things we've, you, know, you can do an hour, you can do two hours, actually. I think we could have gone on for another couple of hours and maybe we'd have been one of those talk till we drop sessions. I just want to thank you all uh, very much. I think my takeaways from today was, was, was many-fold. Everything changes, but nothing changes. The, you know, the role of private equity, it, it's clearly large in, in financing and recovery. Um, you know, but the, and the model, the PE model, definitely supports itself to a post-COVID sustainability era. Um, risk and is still is the flip side of return, and the, the need to really encapsulate and take a holistic view of risk in, in terms of your investing process, um, and value and resilience as as part of that is as key fundamentals to the investment process going forward. And finally, that you know, if you're going to be reporting and reassuring investors, the robustness and concern is absolutely key, but we need to keep it simple uh, and not get you know douse ourselves with uh, with uh, tar and feathers, as it were. So. That was my summary for, for today. Join if you please, you know, uh, so sort of thank you. For, for, we'll get to the questions at some other point. My apologies for that. 
Um, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Divya. Thank you, Gertz. You were you know, really, really great. It's, it was a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we'll pick up those in the margins. Thank you, everybody, that was joined us today for the, for the live webinar. Um, we've obviously got the, the podcast from, from Ben today. There's a still a small board of uh, other things to online. There are nine fringe events that are going on. I still think there's a two, two or three more fringe events later on today. Have a look at our website, re-record you know, re and listen to the, to the podcast. Please do complete our survey. And I'm not bad on planning today, actually. I just want to say thank you very much. I'm really hoping that the goals that we're setting out to achieve, Richard, that you talked about, that we can make that you know, we can make that changes not just for this year but for every year going forward because this is about you know it's, it's about making the world a, a good place for our for our children and our grandchildren um so with that no further time thank you ever so much uh, to my panelists much appreciate for joining for guernsey sustainable finance week 2020 thank you very much thank you thank you